kindergarten and, and up until about grade six. And uh, yeah, so you can be released. It shouldn't be too controversial to note that uh, one of the most striking benefits of knowing God is the sense of, of purpose and meaning that he brings into our life. Um, it's not the reason necessarily that we become Christian, but it is, uh, I don't know how to say that, it, it's, a good, um, it's a great benefit of knowing God, is knowing that, that God being creator, that God being the one who has set the universe into motion, that God is the one who superintends, which means he is the one who oversees every atom of creation, and that God is building history toward a purpose, and it is a benefit of faith. It's a benefit of belief that, that, that reception that we get of meaning and purpose and mission that comes from us knowing God. Um, last spring, uh, you know, I'm a, I serve on one of the steering committees for the Dig and Delve, the apologetics committee or, uh, conference here in our town. And last spring, we had the, we had the honor of, of bringing in um, uh, a gentleman from the UK named Oz Guinness, and he did, they did an evening last spring where he and then uh, an, a professor, an atheist professor from the University of Toronto named Christopher DiCarlo, and they came and they had what we called a dialogue. And the, the title of the dialogue was uh, Meaning Without a Maker. Can we have purpose? Is there purpose to life if in fact there is no God? And if there is a God, what does that speak about the meaning and the purpose and the mission for which we've been created, the meaning and the purpose of life? Um, it's a good thing that that wasn't actually a formal debate, because in a formal debate, right, you don't want to give up your side. But in that dialogue, it's a good thing it wasn't a debate, because Mr. DiCarlo, Professor DiCarlo, uh, the atheist, blatantly admitted during the evening, and this is a quote from the evening where he said, if there is no God, then the universe is simply accidental, and we are a product of that accidental occurrence. As such, we would be on our own. The universe would be devoid of any absolute meaning or moral sense. So and that's why I'm saying it's a good thing that there wasn't a debate because he basically conceded the debate on, on those terms just, just in the matter of, of speaking. Now, he went on to argue that although the universe would have no ultimate meaning, that the universe would have no ultimate purpose without God, he went on to argue to say, well, that doesn't really matter. What matters is the meaning that you give to your own life. And so that's, that's how he progressed. But it was clear that not everybody saw it that way. And um, it was interesting. I went out with you know, some of my friends from the skeptics group, which are the atheist groups. I went out uh, for drinks after to just kind of talk to them after the debate. And uh, my friend Mark actually told me that as he was walking off out of the venue, he saw a young woman, university age, crouched down in front of like the bathroom, and she, with tears in her eyes, was saying, what he told me she was saying was, none of it matters. None of it matters, that there's no meaning, there's no purpose. And Matt, or Mark said, he told me, he said, he didn't know if this was, uh, he didn't know what was causing this young lady to be in such despair. He didn't know if this was a Christian 
who maybe had come to the meeting and, and now was saying, oh, maybe none of this does matter, or he didn't know if this was uh, maybe somebody who'd be an atheist who came to the meeting and, and for the first time heard so uh, honestly confessed that if there is no God, that the universe does not have any absolute meaning or intrinsic meaning or purpose. But it's clear that this young lady was under distress and despair because it had impressed upon her that night that without God, there could be no meaning. And so I've already said, as Christians, one, of the, one, one thing we receive as the benefits of knowing God, and I say it that way because God himself is the treasure. God himself is the benefit himself of knowing God. God if, if God is, and then he's, he's revealed himself to us so that we can come back and relate to him through Jesus, God himself is the treasure, but in knowing God, we receive a lot of the benefits from knowing God, and one of those benefits we receive from knowing God is a knowledge and understanding that the universe has purpose and that life has meaning. We are, as it says uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, for example, we are, as the scripture says, we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for, for beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, so if, we know, if you know Christ, if you know God and you understand now that your universe has meaning, you understand that life has purpose, then you also understand as a Christian, it's been revealed to us that he's not only set the universe in motion, but he has actually created each one of us and he's created us for good works that we might walk in them. And then suddenly your individual life is now set in the context of God's eternal purpose. Your individual life now is infused with meaning and with purpose and with as we're going to talk about today, with mission. And so, so we are part, we become part of the body of Christ. If you're, if you're here today, you're not yet a Christian. If you're here today, I, I want to set before you that there is something greater, that something greater is God himself, but in knowing God, you then can connect yourself to his divine purposes, his divine mission. We become part of God's mission in the world to exalt his son, Jesus Christ, in every corner of the globe and to seek and save a people for himself from every nation. It's the mission that God set before his son when he sent Jesus into this world for the, for the purpose of the eternal plan of God, Christ, the, the, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, came into this world for a purpose, for a mission, which was, as he said in a number of different occasions, he said, My, I have come that they might have life. I have come to seek and to save the lost. I have come that you might have life and in having life abundantly. I've come so that they might know me, he said, and that they then might know the Father who has sent me. So Jesus came with a mission. Jesus came with a purpose. Jesus came understanding God's eternal plan and mission. But then he sends us on the same mission. He says, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And that's where we are as we've been going into the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts, if you remember how the book of Acts starts in chapter 1. The book of Acts starts off in chapter 1 where the apostles had seen, the apostles had seen the impossible. They had seen their teacher, their friend, their rabbi die a gruesome death. 
at, at his death, they scattered. Right? Just as the psalmist had said, I'll strike the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And so, and so they scattered at his death, yet they encountered the risen Lord. They encountered Jesus, having risen from the dead, knowing that in his resurrection, he was indeed who he said he was. I always preach, particularly at Easter, Jesus came with a message like no other. Jesus' message was basically, I am God, kill me, and I'll prove it. And that's what he did. He went around proclaiming himself as the way, as the, the truth, as the life, as the door, as the gate by which you come to the Father. And people believed him or they didn't believe him. But when he died, everybody thought it was over. And when he raised again from the dead, everybody said, he could no, not be anyone else. He must be who he claimed to be. And so in Acts chapter 1, they go to Jesus, he's risen from the dead, and they say to him, because the Jewish people had the expectation that when Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom on the earth. And so they'd just seen Jesus prove that he's Messiah. And they'd seen him die, and they'd seen him raise again. So they go to him in Acts chapter 1, and they say to him, Jesus, is it at this time that you are going to set up your kingdom? Right? That seems to be the next logical conclusion. Messiah has come. Messiah was opposed. Messiah has raised again triumphantly. So now, Messiah will set up his kingdom. But Jesus' response, as we noted in Acts chapter 1, is very, very different. Jesus, is it at this time that you will set up your kingdom? And he says, in your response to them, he says this. He says, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set by his own authority. So Jesus said, basically, butt out. It's not none of your business. Not for you to know the times and seasons the Father has set by his own authority. But, he goes on to say, but you, but you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in starting in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to all the ends of the earth. And then it says in the very next and then it says right after that, and he was taken up to heaven in a cloud, and he, he visibly departed from them, and the apostles were sitting there going, what just happened? And they were staring up into the sky, and an angel came by and said, well, what are you guys looking at? This Jesus who you just saw ascend to heaven will return in the same way. And so they asked, so, so come back with me, they asked Jesus, Jesus, is it now that you're going to set up your kingdom? He says, it's none of your business not for you to know those times and seasons, but you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He sends them on a mission. It's not just that Jesus connected and knew the eternal mission of God and why and for what purpose he'd come into the world, but now as he ascends to the Father, he sends out us, his church, his people, on mission for him to proclaim his excellencies in every corner of the globe. And that's what we're looking at as we're going to be going over the next, I think it's five weeks, we're going to be going through Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. And we're moving into a new section in the book of Acts. We've basically covered two major sections of the book of Acts, and now we're moving into a third major section. Okay? The first major section, let's just do this uh, interactive today because we don't have any PowerPoints on the screen. First major section was about a church. What was the church that we looked at at the first major section of the book of Acts? Let's see how we're doing. This is the final exam. I know you guys are getting ready. The high schoolers, you're gearing up for finals. University students, you're like, oh, I'm done. But, uh, so what was the first major 
church that we looked at in the book of Acts? Shout it out. Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Jerusalem. And Jerusalem we called, a Jerusalem was a church for all ages. And what do we mean by the Jerusalem church being a church for all ages? What we mean is in those chapters of the book of Acts, what we get and what we see is a model of what the church should be. Right? So they're a church that they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devote themselves to prayer. They're a church of integrity. They're a church of, of generosity, of sharing with one another. They are a church that is, that is a true family community, a true holy community, displaying the holiness and the character of God in their community as the Holy Spirit has brought them together into this church. So that's the Jerusalem church in that first section Acts chapter 1, 2, about, I think I said 5. And then we took a second ch chunk of the book of Acts, and what was the second chunk? What was the church there? What city did we associate with that church? There you go, right? Antioch, right? And what was unique about Antioch is that they retained the same character as the Jerusalem church, but what was unique in the, what led up to the Antioch church was that as they extended, as the Holy Spirit extended them beyond Jerusalem, you started seeing walls coming down between the peoples, right? And so at first they get kicked out in Acts chapter 8. They get kicked out. There's a persecution that happens at the end of Acts chapter 7. And they, get, they scatter because of this persecution. Where's the first place they go? Sa. Uh, onward. Yeah, they go, they go onward. Now they first go, they first go to Samaria, okay? Samaria. What's unique about the Samaritans? The Jews, they were friends with the Jews or not friends with the Jews? That's an easy question. Ready? Not friends with the Jews. They were enemies. They were, they were mortal enemies of each other. And so the first place the gospel goes after Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit scatters them and they go into Samaria and they start preaching the gospel. And guess what happens? The Samaritans come to Jesus. Walls start coming down, right? In that section, then, they start going to different people that would have been with outside of the boundaries of, of who would have been able to come to the temple to worship. And that's who the eunuch is representing. The Ethiopian eunuch is a guy coming from the corners of the world, Ethiopia, coming to Jerusalem. He would have been barred entry into the temple because of his, his circumstance as a eunuch. Yet, he goes and has the gospel preached to him, and he says to Philip, who's preaching the gospel to him, what prevents me from being baptized? Because he knows there's a wall up. And Philip says, nothing, get in the water. So Philip, include, he becomes included in another wall coming down. And then Peter goes to a guy, Cornelius' house. Now, who's Cornelius? He's, no, am I saying that right? Cornelius, the centurion. Right? I'm having a brain derailment here. And Cornelius is a centurion. He's in the Roman army. He's a Gentile. The Gentiles were considered as dogs to the Jewish people. They weren't allowed to eat with them. They weren't allowed to go to their houses, right? But God gives Peter a vision that says, don't call anything unclean which I have called clean. And just as Peter's getting that vision, he hears a knock on the door. People from Cornelius' household, had had a an angel had appeared to Cornelius and said, go find this guy, Peter. And so Peter goes, I guess the Holy Spirit's doing this now. So Peter goes, and he goes, and he preaches the gospel to Cornelius' houses. This, all these Gentiles, this whole household, they hear the gospel, they repent, 
the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and Peter says, who can stop us from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized. And so you get then, as you go, the gospel goes north and north and outward and outward and onward. As it goes into Antioch, you have now in Antioch, what happens in Antioch, the Holy Spirit scatters the church up there, and they start preaching the gospel to everyone. They start preaching the gospel to whoever will, will hear them. And a great number of Gentiles are coming to the Lord. And now in Antioch, you have a church for all people. And the walls have come down. And last week we looked at there is controversy over that. But you have, at the end of chapter 15, you have the final word. That the Gentiles are included in the church as Gentiles. Now what, through those two sections, what you have so far in the book of Acts is you have very clearly and very directly Luke, the author of the book of Acts, marking with great precision how the Holy Spirit led the church through each one of these things. Because the argument is, it's not just what the people in the church, it's not the church set out, sat down, had a board meeting, said we're going to have a 10-year plan, a 15-year plan, we're going to do this, we're going to go to the Gentiles, we're going to go to the Samaritans, Luke says that is not what happened at all. In fact, what you saw in the book of Acts is you saw the church remaining in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit uses persecution to drive them out. And that's how these churches got started. That's how the expansion happened. People were running for their lives. And as they ran for their lives, they started telling people about Jesus. Like, ah, hey, Jesus. Ah, and they kept on running and they kept on telling people about Jesus. Right? This is not a great mission plan. This is called, what we called, the, the term I gave this was the spontaneous expansion of the church. The spontaneous expansion of the church is what happens when the Holy Spirit just sends you out through every circumstance, not just people like me, but people like every single one of us here. The Holy Spirit sends us out and we know that we are witnesses and we have one message. And that's what's happened so far in the book of Acts. Every single one of this expansion up until this point, every single part of this, the walls coming down up until this point has been the Holy Spirit just every time along the way kind of kicking them forward. But now, over this next month, we're going to look at a section of Scripture that everything begins to change in a sense. Because now in this section that we're looking at, in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and even as we go into the modern day, what we're going to see now is that the church is going to, after having been kicked by the Holy Spirit, to go and go and go. Finally, we're going to see the church here getting it and saying, okay, we're going to go. And that's what we have here in Acts chapter 13. You have now the church finally, and individuals in the church finally, seeing their place in the mission of God, taking it up, and going. That's what we have in Acts chapter 13. So why don't you read with me Acts chapter 13. If you got your Bible from before, you can find Acts chapter 13, and that's where we're at. Acts chapter 13, we're going to look at only three verses. And we're going to look at some a little bit later in the chapter. I'll try not to flip around too much since you guys will have your scriptures open. But Acts chapter 13, it says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch. So, so, so get this, we're starting back here in Antioch. This is where we kind of left off. Okay, There were in the church at Antioch 
prophets and teachers. And he names the prophets and teachers. Barnabas, we, we know. Simeon, who is called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch. And Saul, also who we know. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, so right away we see uh, a couple things. We see they're, they're, they're in Antioch, which is the church that we just left behind, right? Or that we're, we're still in. Where we see, all, you know, we, we talked about the church for all people. You see this already in the leadership in the Antioch church, right? You have Barnabas and Saul. We know who they are. Barnabas is a Levite. He's from, he's from uh, Cyprus. Uh, but he was, he was living in Jerusalem when he heard the gospel. He sold property and, and donated it to the Jerusalem church. He's known as the, uh, he's known as the uh, son of encouragement by the apostles. So you have, you have Barnabas, a Levite, from the tribe of Levi. You have, the, uh, you have Saul, who's no, from the tribe of Benjamin, who claims in Philippians he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's the Jewish Jew. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was so zealous for God, and he thought the Christians were heretics, so he went out and persecuted the Christians, right? And in one of those, uh, where he, when he went out to go persecute the Christians, that's when, he saw, that's when the Lord revealed himself to him in a vision. Remember, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so you have Saul. Change completely revolutionized his life. So you have, you have Saul and you have Barnabas. You have, you have two guys. Um, you have Simeon, who is called Niger, which is Greek for dark-skinned one. I mean, that's what it is. And so, and you have also Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is a city in North Africa. Okay, so now Lucius, might, we don't know if whether they were Jew or Gentile. What we do know is both of them were likely uh, from North Africa, having come now to Antioch. Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city. And then you have this guy who had grown up with Herod, the Tetrarch. And, and the word here for grown up with there are some commentators that think this word, they, they've seen this word used in other ancient literature for being a foster brother of. So when it says they grew up together, it's not just they went to the same public school, it's that, it's that they actually like were raised together. So this is the guy that was raised up with Herod, the same Herod who, remember at his birthday party, had John the Baptist beheaded? I wonder if this guy was there. We don't know. But, but he's friends with, he was raised up with this Herod who had John the Baptist in prison. This, this Herod who they dragged Jesus in front of, right? Pilate, when Jesus was brought, the Jewish leaders brought Jesus to Pilate. And Pilate said, I, I don't know what to do. Uh, Herod, come here, Herod. And they sent him over to Herod. And Herod looked at him, inspected him, had him beaten, and then sent back to Pilate. That Herod was this guy's friend. So we don't know anything about him. We don't know when he came to faith. But it's an interesting mix of people here in leadership, prophets and teachers in this Antioch church. So we see that. But, but what, what really we have here in the first kind of big point about this, and I want you to understand, is the Holy Spirit is propelling this mission. And I, and I want to clearly state that right now because we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack the next couple of chapters and we're going to see that the apostles, Barnabas and Saul, they go out with a strategy. 
Like they go out knowing what they are to do and they go out seeking to do it. But I want you to understand, and so sometimes I, I take these, these, these sections of the book of Acts and you, you'll hear people, comment, commentators commentating on these sections of the book of Acts. And they'll talk about before this point, it was the ex spontaneous expansion of the church. And after this point is the strategic expansion of the church. So after this point, the church is, is kind of reactive to what the Spirit is doing and where he's kind of kicking them to. And then after this point, or sorry, before this point, they're reactive. After this point, they're proactive. After this point, the, the idea is, Luke is always very clear to say, and then the Holy Spirit did this, and then they went this. And, but after this point, it's more they are making the plans of where to go. But, I, but what I don't want you to miss here in this passage and what is being brought out here is that this, this strategic expansion of the church happens as the Holy Spirit directly propels the church to do this. Okay, so it's not, it's, 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 this, is not, this is not them sitting down in the meeting saying, okay, well, how can we best reach now the Gentiles for Christ? This is them gathering together, praying, fasting, listening, hearing. The, the words also are, they, they, they denote an ongoing activity of the church. This probably isn't just one prayer meeting where they hear now the Holy Spirit says, Saul and Barnabas, go out. This was, this was happening in the life of the church where the, the, the prophets and the teachers, the leaders of the church were devoting themselves to seeking the Lord's will for every step along the way and what the Holy Spirit will lead them to do next. And they were able to understand that. And so the point is here, number one, that the Spirit propels... And that point number two is that the Spirit propels a prepared people. The Spirit propels a prepared people. These people were devoting themselves as a church collectively, as leaders of the church individually. They're devoting themselves to hear, okay, God, we understand that you are creator of all things. We understand that you have set this universe in motion for your intents and your purposes but God, we as a community, we as a church are coming before you. We are humbling ourselves. That's what fasting is, is humbling ourselves before you, God, asking you to show us where next, what next, and listening, God, what are you going to do next? And as they're preparing themselves in, in fasting and prayer, the Holy Spirit speaks and propels them out. Now, that's not the only way that they are preparing themselves for whatever work that God had for them. We, are, we already know some other ways that they are preparing themselves as well. They are preparing themselves, Saul and Barnabas and, and, and likely these other prophets and teachers, were preparing themselves by, by, by laboring in the fields that God had set them in right now. It said that uh, earlier on in chapter 11, it said that Saul and Barnabas had stayed and remained in that Antioch church for over a year teaching the disciples all that Christ had commanded them. And so they, they were praying, they were fasting, but as they're praying and fasting and waiting upon the Lord, they're also working hard in God's field. They're laboring to make disciples together. There are people prepared. What, what else has been going on? Well, we also understand that, and I'm going to kind of raise this to, to, to all of us here, there are people prepared, they're praying, they're fasting, they're laboring, they're teaching, they're training disciples there are also people prepared understanding that, that God has set apart Barnabas and Saul for a specific work, 
And God has already been preparing them for the work that they are about to now set out and do. There are prepared people in that, for example, you know the, well, do you know Barnabas, for example? Barnabas, having grown up in the Gentile world, Barnabas was a Jewish guy, but he'd grown up in Cyprus. He was raised together in Cyprus. So he, 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 in a sense, is being prepared for a mission to the Gentile world even in his childhood, even as he is there in Cyprus. In fact, the reason why Barnabas is sent to Antioch is because the initial converts in Antioch were people from Cyprus. And so the Jerusalem church sends Barnabas there because he's a person prepared for that mission uniquely. Take the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, now we know the Apostle Paul, when, when, when Jesus revealed himself to the Apostle Paul, when he was out persecuting Jewish people, Jesus reveals and, and, and reveals himself to the Apostle Paul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But in Saul's conversion, Jesus had revealed that Saul was going to be, he says, this is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. So Saul knows from his conversion that the Holy Spirit has set him apart. Saul has been studying the law of God his whole life as he was training to be a Pharisee. But what happens after Saul hears that call at his conversion, he, he goes on a number of detours. First, he goes into the wilderness. For a couple of years, possibly, Saul is, is in the wilderness trying to reorient his life around this gospel that he has now heard, the good news that salvation is in Jesus Christ. And, and that's a humbling time in the wilderness for, for a guy who's, who's been, been trained up all his life to be the next great teacher, the next great Pharisee, suddenly to be sidestepped into this, here I am, alone with Jesus in the wilderness by myself, humbly. Saul comes out of the wilderness. He goes into Jerusalem and he, there, there's, a, there's a little bit of him preaching and, and then they want to kill him. The Jew, Jewish people wanted to kill him. And so the apostles actually have to tell him, in a sense, they say, simmer down, and they send him back to his hometown in Tarsus. Now, we don't know what Saul did in Tarsus. We do know a couple things that we know from history. Number one, we, we don't have any record of an ancient church in Tarsus. We don't have any evidence that when, Paul was, when Saul was sent back to Tarsus, that he, was, that he was establishing a church in Tarsus, or if he did, it didn't catch on. What we do know from Tarsus is that Tarsus was a center. The, the trade that Tarsus was famous for was for uh, making tents, tent making. Now, why is that interesting when you know, if, if you know the rest of the story of how the Apostle Paul gets around the Roman Empire and starts supporting himself as he is a missionary? In fact, we use, still use the term today, the tent making missionary, right? It's because the Apostle Paul, as he goes out on this mission, he uses even the secular skills that he has picked up probably from that time in his life when he's in Tarsus. He uses those secular skills in order to advance the gospel, in order to connect all that God had prepared in his life so that he could join himself to the work of the ministry. That's what happens over these next couple of chapters. So these, these guys, Paul or Saul and Barnabas, are prepared for the work now that the Holy Spirit is going to propel them into. Okay, so, so some of you, and, and I, wanna, I, I, I make that as a, as a bigger point here, because what we're going to see as we go forward is I believe this mission that, that, that the Holy Spirit sets apart Saul and Barnabas into 
through the ages becomes the mission that our, the entire church is involved in. That the church is involved in, in going out and being continuing this great commission. And so what that means is each one of us is in some way connected to the mission of God. It, it, not just those of, of you and those of me who are called into vocational ministry, but every single one of us as the body of Christ is preparing and being prepared for the work that God is putting and setting in front of us. Okay? So, so each one of us, it doesn't matter what your, what your major is. It doesn't matter what the things you've studied. It doesn't matter if you're just working a job. God can use working a job in order to prepare you for the mission that he has in front of you. In fact, that the work in the job might in fact be the mission of God that he's set in front of you right now. And so the apostle, Saul the apostle, as he's, as he's working in Tarsus, putting tents together, he might not think that this is part of putting together the mission of God for his life, right? He might have, in fact, been very discouraged, thinking, man, I was gonna, supposed to be the next great rabbi, and here I am sewing tents. Yet God was preparing him, and they were preparing themselves as they gathered together in prayer and fasting. The Holy Spirit propelled them, but the Holy Spirit propelled them as a prepared people. And the Holy Spirit propelled them into his work. I'm just going to go back and read. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, uh, Menaean, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then verse number three, and then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So you see that they're, they're sent out into a work. And, and what is that work that they're sent out to do? Well, because we got started a bit late today, I'm not going to go into that work today. We're, we're going to be looking at this work that they're sent out to do over the next four weeks. Okay? I want to show you something at the end of this work. Go with me to the end of chapter 14. The end of chapter 14, this is after now they have gone out and they actually go to Cyprus. That's where they go first. It's interesting. Barnabas is like, where do we go? Let's go to Cyprus. That's where he's from. So they go to Cyprus and then they hit the, um, they hit the, uh, the, the coast of of what, was called, uh, of, of what was called Asia, now is modern Turkey. They, they go up and hit the Mediterranean coast of that. And they start working their way down the highway system. And, uh, and, and then they, they loop around and they go back, and they, they go back to Antioch. And it says in chapter 14, it says in verse 26, it says this, it says, And there, from there, so as they're looping around, from there they sent and sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. But I want to direct your attention to this. They are sent out, the Holy Spirit in calling them says, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And then at the end of chapter 14, it says they went back to Antioch and they said, we did it. So they went back and they reported about the work now having been fulfilled. And so I want, the, the point I want to make, and I'm not going to dissect all this, we're going to dissect it over the next four weeks, 
But the point I want to make today is when the Holy Spirit spoke to them and said, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work that I've commanded them, they understood what it was that they were to do. They understood exactly what it was, what work God had called them to do, and they understood when they had completed it, when it had been fulfilled. They went out with, a, uh, with such a clear vision of what their mission was, of what the work that was set in front of them, so that they, could, they went out and said, okay, Holy Spirit, we understand, we got you. The whole church said, yes, we're going to pray some more over you, we're going to fast over you, and we're going to send you out to do this. And they said, yes, we did it. They went out and did it, and they said, yep, we've done it. And, and that, that, that clarity of that mission that God had put in front of them is, is, is it, it's important because so often as a church and so often as Christians, we think of the mission of our life, we think of the work that God sets in front of us, and, and we don't have that sort of clarity. We have as Christians an encouragement that we know God is in control, we know God is creator, we know God is leading my life to something and somewhere and to do something, right? But we don't have that same clarity. And what we're hoping to do over these next four weeks is actually define for our church what is, with some clarity, what is the work that Christ has set in front of his church, particularly as we at OCBC are going into a new neighborhood, as we're going into a new chapter in our life as a church, into um, into new chapter of, of, of the work that he set in front of us. So that's what we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks. We're going to be unpacking that work. Um, but I'm not going to do it today. I was going to introduce it a little bit more, but I'm not going to do that anymore today. I do have some final thoughts on this work, though, this work that Christ has set in front of us. And I, and I want to I just end with three, three kind of, of my observations about this work that Christ has set Saul and Barnabas in and this work that Christ is setting us as a church, setting in front of us. Kind of my first observation, my first thought is this. As we're going to be looking at, over the next five weeks, the mission of God, the work of God that God has called us to be a part of, I want to just think clearly right now to understand that the mission of God is larger than any church, and it's larger than any one individual. You often will hear churches, so uh, I'll put it this way, I was reading a blog um, from a millennial. Where are my millennials at? Woo! I was reading a blog from a millennial. And one of the things it said is, the peop- nobody listens to millennial. Well, I read this blog. I'm listening to you. And uh, one of the things, one of the points they said of why millennials, they said, well, this is what bothers us about church sometimes, is that what bothers us about church sometimes is that churches make it all about their mission. And they, they wrote and they said, we're tired of hearing about the mission of your church. We're tired of hearing about, here's our great new mission. We, we get sold to all the time, right? We, we have messages all around, advertising all around, even social media all around, every day selling us messages. We're sick and tired of when we come to church, we want to not have that set in front of us. So as we go through these next five weeks, I, that is my intent is not to say, here is OCBC, and here is our mission, guys. That is not what I'm intending to do. It is not that we have sat around, our leaders have sat around and said, wow, we're so smart, we figured this church thing out. That is not what we are trying to set in front of us. What we are trying to do, 
by talking about what is the mission of God and how do our lives and our church fit into that is understand that the mission of God, the work of God on this planet, the work of the Holy Spirit of taking the good news of Jesus Christ into every corner and neighborhood of this globe is bigger than OCBC. It's, the work of God is bigger than us. But we need that clearly defined. We need God's work clearly defined so we can know whether we're doing it well or not. That's what we're trying to do. It's not that we sat around and said, oh, we got a great new vision statement. It's that we're studying the scriptures together and seeing, okay, Jesus, what are we to do? And that's how I want to set up these next five weeks. We want to humble ourselves before scripture and say, okay, Jesus, what are we to do? Because the mission of God, someday, and I pray it would not happen to OCBC, but we have seen churches that have veered off of the mission of God, and, and as Jesus says in Revelations, he's the one who walks among the candlesticks, and he's the one that at times extinguishes and snuffs out the churches. It's not our mission, it's, it's Christ's. If, if your mission is just what you make it to be, we are doing just what, that, what, just what Dr. DiCarlo said. If we're just saying, you know, come up with your own mission, come up with your own vision, we're doing just what the, we have no greater hope than the atheist. We actually believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him and he communicates to us, his people, through his word and by the power of the spirit to tell us what to do. And we say, here I am, Lord, send me. Second, final thought, second thought, the mission of God is larger than any vocational ministry, but includes vocational ministry. You're going to see as we go through these chapters in the book of Acts, you're going to see regular, everyday Christians connecting their lives with the mission of God. I think of Lydia, the seller of purple. She's in Philippi, and she's meeting with some of her Jewish friends, and they meet at the river because there's not a synagogue in their town. And, and she's a very well-off, wealthy woman. She has a business that, that, that is pretty successful. A seller of purple. Purple was an expensive dye. And she comes, and the apostles come, and they meet her at the river, and they share the gospel of Christ with her, and she believes in Jesus. And what does she do? She uses her resources. She uses her money. She uses her house. She uses all that is hers to give. And she says, here, why don't you stay? Why don't you be my guest? Why don't I feed you? Why don't I host you while you're here? And Lydia is, Lydia is an amazing example of a woman who, who just says, I see now, I see the gospel, I see the glory of Jesus, and I see the mission that you guys are on, I see the mission that God has set before you, and I want part of that. And she does that not as somebody who goes out sent into the mission field, she does that as someone who, who, who's working a job, who has a business, and who's contributing toward and showing hospitality toward the saints. See, that's the point of when we're talking about the mission of God in the church. It's all of us as the body of Christ contributing as we can. Yet, some of us must consider and contemplate that God may be raising us up as individuals to be sent out into the mission of God. We might be sending you out as a Barnabas, as a Saul. and says, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, into the work that I've commended them. We, we, we need to understand in that, that, that part of that preparing for you might be learning and teaching and praying and fasting and, and waiting upon the Lord until he raises you up to send you out. A third thought that I wanted to leave with us here as a church, because it is really important for us, 
is that the mission of God sometimes sends people away. And it's really hard when that happens. Think about these three guys that are left at the church of Antioch, right? Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've commanded him. Think about Menaeus and, and Simeon and, and, uh, and Lucius, and they're sitting going, wait a minute, Barnabas was the guy who the Jerusalem church sent here. And now you're saying, Holy Spirit, we got to give him away? Saul was the guy that Barnabas went and got and grabbed and brought here. And now, wait, they're the ones who have been teaching us. They're, they're the ones who have been bringing the word of God to us. And now you're saying we're, we're to let them go. And, and what's amazing is how freely this church lets them go. It's amazing how freely this church, this church sees them as their members, but they don't see them as their property. Right? And it's hard when we've developed a family here and we've developed close bonds here and then somebody says, I feel called to go and to help with the church plant over here or I feel called to go to this city and, or to be part of this church over here. And, and it's hard to do that. It, it, it affects us as a congregation. It's hard for me as a pastor. And so I need to preach this to myself again and again and again is to remember that even though we are, we are a close-knit family of God that God is calling us to be, at times God is going to raise people up so that we can let them go. So that we can let them go, so that we can bless them, and so that we can say, man, I, 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 just, I just pray for you, and I pray that God will use you greatly wherever he is sending you. It's a hard thing to do. It's really hard to do. And then finally, I would just ask you, what are you living for? As we go through these next five weeks and we understand that this mission of God is, is greater than just our church, it's greater than my life, but that each one of us might connect our lives and, and live for something beyond the goals and the blasphemous... <laughs> I was reading John Piper, so I got this a little bit. The goals and the blasphemous dreams that our culture has set in front of us. It's not that your dreams are too big, it's that your dreams are misguided because you're not living for the glory. If, 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 if the glory of God is not your greatest dream, we're living for idols. If, if, if the goal of your life, if the work that you have set up for yourself is, I want to be successful, I want to be rich, I want to, I want to have the nice, comfortable family, I want to have, you know, I want to have the the loving husband, and that's the goal of my life. Well, those are good, good things, but if they become God things to us, they become idols to us. Instead, you set the gifts that God has given you, the opportunities that God has given you, the, the, even the dreams and ambitions that God has given you, you submit them and set them under this overarching work of God and what he's doing in our city and in our world. What are you living for? Nothing else will satisfy. If you're living for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, at some point you're going to find out it's not there. It doesn't exist. And whether that's wealth, whether that's a relationship, whether that's popularity, whether that's Instagram, we even called that one Insta. You know what Insta means is? It's vapor. What are you living for?